Our scripture reading for today comes from Matthew chapter 9, the, verse, the first uh, 17 verses. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, then the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we're going to explore a recurring theme in Jesus' ministry. It's uh, a theme we see all throughout the Gospels, and in particular in this passage. And those four themes are God calls, God cleanses, God communes, and God commissions. And you'll notice that this pattern that we see repeated in the Gospel is also what informs our liturgy and our worship and the flow on Sunday morning, and by God's grace, we want this to not just be a pattern and a flow for the worship on Sunday morning, but actually a pattern and a liturgy in our daily lives. That as we recognize that God calls us in his greatness, we, we respond and we turn to him and we give him praise. And then as we see God for who he is, we also see us for who we are. And that leads us to the cleansing, the repentance, the life of repentance and the desiring for his uh, spirit to bring renewal. And after that cleansing is the communing. On Sunday morning, the communing is through prayer and hymns. He communes through the preaching of the scripture. He communes through the power of his spirit. He communes through the sacraments in our day-to-day lives. He communes with us through his word and his spirit present in our homes as we turn to him and meditate and reflect on him. And then, of course, he commissions us to go into the city and live to his glory. So first, let's start with how we see God calls God's calling has been happening leading up to this passage here since the beginning of Matthew because 
Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. We know that the word gospel means good news. But when we often think of it, the the only context we think for gospel is the cross. That's rightly so, but I just want you to consider the fact that Jesus is using the word gospel before he's gone to the cross. So what does this teach us and inform us? It means that the good news that Jesus was preaching for three years before the cross, the good news is that the king has come, the creator has come, renewal has come restoration has come the forgiveness of sin has come that in one sense the kingdom has come in him the good news is that the end of the old creation rumbling on for forever is definitively come to an end the cross is therefore the key that unlocks god's goal in the gospel god's goal in the good news that the substitutionary death of christ the victorious christ at the cross the divine resurrection is a window into the renewal of all things, which is God's plan at the beginning. This is the gospel. God's been calling through the teaching of Jesus, but then beyond just the teaching of Jesus, as Jesus teaches the ways of the kingdom, Jesus starts doing these miracles demonstrating the power of the kingdom. That the signs, as we were talking about last week, the signs that Jesus performed, all of the signs of healing are pointing to an ultimate healing and an ultimate renewal that he will bring with his return. And all of the calling that Jesus is doing is not subtle. It is jarring. The things that he are doing, the, the things that he is doing is causing people to stop dead in their tracks. In 2007, the shortest boxing match in boxing history took place. It was 10 seconds. That's about, that's about enough time for them to ring the bell and meet at the middle of the ring and then it's over. And the, the calling of Jesus through the, his teaching and particularly his signs and these miracles, we witness another one in this text, they are so jarring, it is so clear, all four gospel writers want our takeaway to be that when Jesus is performing these signs, it's no contest. It's a KO. Whether it's the demonic powers, whether it's renewing the, 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 the physical uh, realm, it's just absolutely no contest. That the powers, uh, the destructive powers, when they come face to face with Jesus, these aren't long drawn out battles. They're just destroyed. Like the New York Giants. There's no overtime. It's not close. You're not wondering where it's going. It's just basically over. This is what's going on. Just flicking ants off picnic tables. That's how Jesus is dealing with the demonic powers. And the gospel writers want us to sit in the magnitude of that as the first witnesses would have been. Let's move on to God's cleansing. See, because his calling had been so demonstrative, he's inviting people to come and experience his cleansing. And this paralytic on the bed, here's the example we get in this text. In Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5, when they record it, they give us more detail and they teach us that this paralytic was actually the one that was lowered through the roof. Some of you may be familiar with that story. If you're new to the scriptures, there were some friends that went to a lot of trouble to get their paralytic buddy to Jesus. And the place was packed, the house was packed. And so they climb on the roof and they let him down. Now, uh, that took a lot of work. That was very inconvenient and likely Embarrassing and ostracizing. I'm just using my imagination here. The text doesn't give us this. But I imagine more than one person told them to stop. Probably starting with the house owner. As they're peeling back the tiles. So this whole 
episode is a demonstration of just tremendous faith that these friends have. The text actually says in verse 12 that Jesus was moved with compassion because he saw the friend's faith. The poor paralytic is in no state to be exercising anything. He's physically unable and he's likely, uh, likely mentally depressed. And he's just laying there absolutely helpless. And Jesus sees the friend's faith. And what's amazing about this, again, it, it shows God's calling leading to his cleansing, is that Jesus is going around doing these incredible signs. He gave the friends the faith. And now he's responding to the faith he gave them. Do you see this is grace upon grace here? And Jesus is responding to this and he moves and he says to the paralytic, be of good cheer. The modern pragmatic Christian would finish that sentence. Be of good cheer. I'm going to take care of your biggest problem, which is that you're a paralytic. But that's not what happens. Here we have highlighted the massive disconnect between what God sees as the priority and what we think ought to be the priority. Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. This is, I think, flies in the, in the face of the modern constructs of wanting a vague spiritualism and no king. Jesus is not providing a vague spiritualism with no king. He is the king of all creation who will restore all things and ultimately give what the deepest longings of the human soul actually want. But the pathway to that is the forgiveness of sin, this restoration, this reconciliation with the God of the cosmos. Who's not just some sort of cosmic control freak, some weird spiritual perfectionist. He loves his creation. And he is holy and perfect and just. And all of the ways in which we are unholy and imperfect and unjust and sinful are what are un- is what is undergirding all the brokenness in every form in the world today. And so he heals this man. And the religious leader's response is, of course, they're freaking out about it. They're angry. This massive disconnect between the heart of God and the people who are supposed to be representing the heart of God. They say, this man blasphemes. Jesus' actions here, he's claiming to be God. They believe, and rightly so, that all sin can only be forgiven by God. That all sin towards our fellow brothers and sisters in the world is ultimately a sin against God. So for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, he's overtly saying, all of the sins are ultimately towards me, I'm God. So the Pharisees are losing their minds about this. And uh, in the English, the English says, this man is blaspheming because then we can read it smoothly. But they're so mad, there's like just a great little hint in the Greek because uh, the word for man in the Greek is andros. So if it said, this man is blaspheming, then the the Greek would have read autos, this, andros, man, blasphemy, is blasphemy. Autos, andros, blasphemy. But in all the Gospels, it just says, autos, blasphemy. Which some Greek commentators say emphasizes the fact that they don't even call Jesus a man. They just go, this, this, blaspheming. They, they're so livid. Have you ever had someone so angry that they're stuttering? They can't get the words out? Have you ever been, remember when you were a kid and your parents, something happened and your parents are yelling and then they name all your siblings and they name the dogs and your friends and then they get to your name? Because they're so amygdala hijacked they can't get the words out? That's this. Altos! Brain fit, brain fit, brain fit. Blasphemy! They, they, can't even, they don't even know what to call Jesus. They're so mad. 
They're so livid. And, you know, these signs are mind-blowing to us, but they're clearly not mind-blowing to the Pharisees. Why is that? These are not the signs that the, that the religious leaders want. They want a political messiah. You're healing the sick, you're touching lepers, you're caring for outcasts. Gross. We're not impressed by this. Send a mighty unibeam from heaven and carve an angry face emoji into Caesar's palace? Now I'm interested. They want politically charged signs. They want a Messiah that's getting rid of... This is what they want, and this is not the Messiah that they're getting. This opposition to Jesus, this misunderstanding of the ministry of Jesus, the beginning of his ministry, is a recurring theme throughout his entire ministry. But of course, he's fulfilling all scripture. In this example, a great example of Psalm 103, which says, who forgives all your iniquities and heals all your diseases. And Jesus just does it in one foul swoop by forgiving this man's sin and, of course, healing his physical body. So let's move on from the cleansing and consider the communing. The passage moves on to verse 9. There's a man named Matthew, and he's sitting at the tax office. And the tax collectors were not only notorious sinners, but they were regarded as collaborators with Rome, and they were uh, social rejects by their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. A tax collector would bid for a region. You would bid uh, with Rome, this is the taxes I can collect from this region. Rome Rome would award you uh, the contract. And so you would go around and collect the taxes. You would pay Rome what you had in the contract. And then you kept the rest for your livelihood. So you can imagine the incentive for overcharging the taxes because it's all pure profit. So this is... uh, what you have here, which is why the tax collectors, of course, were so hated. So if, if, you were, if you were a Jew and you chose the vocation of being a tax collector, you were immediately disqualified from witness in the court system because you weren't considered to be trustworthy. You were excommunicated from the synagogue. And your, your family considered you a disgrace. These are who the tax collectors are. You know, we have archaeological work that reveals that the tax offices were often in strategic locations, one of which being near the harbors where they caught the fish because they would tax the fish coming out of the Sea of Galilee. So don't have an image in your mind like these fishermen are just, you know, it's the old world and they're just pulling stuff out of the water and taking it home for free. No, they get back to the harbor and there's the tax office. Hey, how's it going? How many fish did you catch? They're getting taxed. Probably being overtaxed. So... Imagine for a moment, Jesus brings this tax man in as a disciple with, guess who? Some fisherman. How would that team intro have gone? Hey guys, this is uh, Peter, James, John. I'd like you to meet Matthew. Oh, you guys have met already. Oh, well. Hey, Matthew. It's good to see you. I could just imagine, you know, and, and, and God has been calling us to work through challenging relationships with all the people sitting next to us in this church so we can minister in this city. That's what he's always done. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus spent so much time with them. That's what the phrase reclining at the table is a cultural idiom that means like, these are your friends, these are your people, like you do... This, Regularly, This isn't like a spend the minimum requirement and then you get up and shake hands and leave work lunch. This is fellowship. This is like hanging out. 
reclining at the table. The Pharisees have no frame of reference for this. They, they assume he's spending so much time with unclean sinners. Jesus has got to be obviously an unclean sinner. He's got to be up to what they're up to. And so Jesus responds, of course, with this phrase, they have, the well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And there's this imagery again of the sick because the, the Pharisees are like doctors who are repulsed by the sick. Could you imagine if when you went to see your doctor, they, they were repulsed by you? Jesus is the great physician who has compassion on the sick. He's communing with the sick. He's being around the sick. You know, being angry and repulsed by sinners is not holiness. Jesus is the picture of holiness. Compassion on sinners is holiness. Oh man, this preacher's soft on sin. No, I'm not. You should hate it. Yours. But if you're constantly giving yourself free passes on your sin... Because it's like, yeah, it's just an issue I'm dealing with and taking to the Lord. But you think what the person sitting next to you is up to is abhorrent and disgusting, and we got to bring church discipline within five seconds of finding out about it. You're not holy. You're angry. And those are not the same thing. Preaching holiness would not look like me up here, turning red, veins pulsating out of my forehead as I'm training my congregation and firing up the base to be disgusted with our city. That's not holiness. Reclining at the table with our brothers and, and, our, and our sisters and our, and our work colleagues and our friends and our neighbors, reclining at their table, that having compassion, that's holiness. If you have a better filter for holiness than Jesus Christ, I'd love to hear it, but this is the picture of holiness. Being a person of holiness, it does not mean that we are soft and, you know, loose with sin and we capitulate to the ideologies of the city and we capitulate to the practices of the city and we embrace the practices and we embrace the ideas. No, 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 no. We don't embrace the ideas and the practices of those who don't share our faith. But from love, we seek to imitate our king And therefore, we have compassion and we are willing to commune with those who don't share our faith. And that takes time. You know, I'm constantly talking about the ways in which we engage our city and our vocation of the city. If you were coming to Redeemer and you were looking at our website before I came here, what kind of a church is this? And one of the ministry values we have is city engagement. Let me tell you something. That is not a program. I'm not anti-program, but I just got to tell you, I'm so pro the lifestyle that I would much rather have 160 folks communing in the city, having compassion, than having one program that, let's face it, 20 of you are going to sign up to be a part of. And let's face it, I already know what 11 of your names are. So I'm not anti-program, anti-strategy and structure. I mean, we spend a lot of time in homework when we're church planting and thinking about our city to do these things. But at the end of the day, it is being blown away by the heart and the love and the grace of Jesus and saying, like, this is how, who I need to be in the city. And so I can't very well have you living in church programs five nights out of the week and then be like, let's go love our city because you're like, I don't have any time to have a beer with my neighbor. Impossible. So Jesus is communing in a way that I think is glorious and beautiful and gracious and informative, which leads to the final thing of this commissioning. 
And so after he contrasts the Pharisees, you know, who have no frame of reference for being with the unclean, Jesus pushes even harder and he says something in verse 13. He goes, go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What's going on here? Okay, well, I'll tell you what's going on here. That phrase, go learn what this means. If you watch NBA basketball, there's like this universal sign for you just got humbled. Uh, If you don't watch NBA basketball, here's what it is. John Morant gets a pass, catches the ball, takes one one step into the key, jumps, and dunks on some seven-foot dude. And the whole entire bench gets up, and they kind of hold each other back like this. And they're all going, and then they're like going, they start tapping themselves on the head. What that means is, he just dunked on your head. On your head. You thought you were the man? You just got on your head. When Jesus says to the law experts, do you know why they're all here when you read the other gospel accounts? The reason the house is full, the reason they're letting the guy down, is because experts in the law came from around Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem. The place is packed with law experts. This is a law seminar. And they've all heard of the miracles of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. They're all like, we got to go hear this guy teach who's a, who is apparently doing these miraculous signs. They all come to hear him teach. So now Jesus is teaching the law. And they, they peel the roof back and they bring down a paralytic. So Jesus is the one who's called to fulfill the law. What does the fulfillment of the law look like? It looks like cleansing and it looks like compassion. So Jesus gives a glorious object lesson of the fulfillment of the law by giving compassion. And what is their response to this but anger? And Jesus goes, you guys are beginners. Why don't you guys, this, why doesn't this whole law seminar, why don't you all take all your PhDs, and why don't you go learn what this means? On their heads. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 6, which says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And the context of Hosea is that people don't desire mercy because they've left the God of mercy. They don't have any time in their life for the Lord of mercy. They're worshiping other gods. They're gone. They're not even close. And Jesus is saying this to the Pharisees because they don't want anything to do with unclean people. Gross. Hosea, by the way, in Hebrew, Hosea is from the same family, the same root as Jesus' name in Hebrew, which is Yeshua, Yeshua, Hosea, both come from the root word salvation. So in the book of Hosea, a book about salvation, you've got God saying to Hosea, go marry a prostitute because that's how I feel. My people have been with me. And so the prophet Hosea goes and he marries the unfaithful. And what's he doing in the book of Hosea? He's constantly running into the city and and bringing her back and loving her and caring for her and weeping and weeping and weeping and weeping because he's committed in love and sacrifice and and covenant and promise. And I'm not going to leave you. And I know you're going to be unfaithful tomorrow, but I'm still going to be there for you. That's what's going on in Hosea. So Yeshua says, who's... You understand where this is going. This is Jesus, the one who is married 
to the unfaithful. Go learn what this means. Because you're not close to this idea you have of holiness. Go and recline at somebody's table and love them and care about them. I mean, it's Jesus doing all of these things as missiology 101. He's putting on a clinic. And so we want to live this way. We've got a lot of parents with a lot of young children here. You want to train your children to be this way. So depending on whether your children are in a a public school context or a Christian school context, because we have both in here, you have to parent strategically in one of these two ways. If your children are in a Christian school where their teachers are going to likely be echoing the kind of ethics you'd be talking about at home, you're going to have to do a lot of work to make sure that they are comfortable reclining at the table with people in their community and loving and caring for people who don't share their faith and don't think like them at all. Because there's a difference between giving your children a foundation and then building a fortress and sticking them in it and being like, they'll be okay. And, you know, if I keep them in there for 20 years till they get to university, then we'll let them out. And then they're going to commune at tables. Maybe not. So you've got to do a lot of work on that side. And then for those of us who put our children into public ed- education, we've got to do a lot of work on the other side. Where we're like, uh, talk about school today, what was going on, what, and you hear about the conversations, and you hear about various different ideologies and ethics, and we just parent our children through that. We teach them through that. We train them. We don't just give them over to, you know, Rabbi YouTube, and just be like, no, hey, whatever the culture's up to, we'll just throw some Jesus on it, and basically end up with the same ethics. That's ridiculous. So in either way, at the end of the day, it is going to be your dinner table that is the predominant place of formation. And part of that formation... We want to raise our children to be young people of holiness. And that holiness is going to look like not, not isolation, but insulation. Loving God's ways, loving his word, going out into various vocations and, and campuses and loving him and then being charitable and caring and reclining at the tables of those who are around our children. So then the disciples, of course, show up and they're like, hey, what's up with the fasting? The disciples aren't, uh, you, you know, your disciples aren't fasting. This is an honest question because they're disciples of John. And John's ministry was of like, look, we care about, we care about holiness, and we care about God's word, and we care about character. And so there, this is an honest question, because they're fasting, and the Pharisees, according to the other scriptures, are fasting twice a week. And so they're like, why aren't your disciples fasting? Now, we know why this, the Pharisees are fasting twice a week, because they're, all, they're, po- they're posting all their fasting on ancient gram. You know, they're like angling the scroll perfectly. They put a little, little bit of tea there and they're just like hashtag deeper, hashtag growing, hashtag Shawn Mendes. And they're just like put it out there on ancient ground because they want everybody to know how holy they are. So we know that that's why they were doing it. But Jesus explains that the disciples aren't fasting because things are different when the Messiah is here. Radically different. There's a new wine happening that the Messiah is here. The disciples were living in the experience that John's disciples were preparing God's people for. They didn't fast. Jesus is like, why? The bridegroom's here. It's party time. I'm I'm with them. Why are they going to mourn and fast? They're living the experience that we're all preparing for, to be with him. And then Jesus says, you know, the day is going to come when people will fast. And of course, now today as the modern church, we'll have seasons of fasting. It's not something that we prescribe in a liturgical calendar way. Every Lent, I'll encourage you that this is a good season to, to take some time to fast. But it's not something I prescribe um, with a sort of a, uh, with a, sort of a, a scriptural liturgical, uh, sorry, calendar authority. But it's a good practice for the 
people of God to be like, I'm desperate and I'm needy and I need you. And this is a season of intense focus. And so fasting is good and appropriate for the modern day Christian. Jesus said, that day I'll come. Of course, we're in that day right now. And so with this illustration of the old wineskins and the new wineskins, Jesus is explaining, you know, he didn't come to deliver them from Rome and then reinstate the Davidic kingdom and the old covenant. He's bringing a new covenant. He's the greater temple. He's the greater temple because if you're unclean, you couldn't go to the temple. You'd make the temple unclean. Jesus is welcoming the unclean and he's making the unclean clean. Greater than temple. He's greater than the priest. Now the rabbis and the, and the scribes and the Pharisees, if they were appropriating the word of God properly, they wouldn't have been staying away from the unclean, but also according to God's word, they wouldn't have gone around hugging, hugging them. That would have been inappropriate because it's a symbol of the holiness. But Jesus was greater than the high priest because he wouldn't get defiled. So he's touching the lepers. And he's the ultimate sacrifice, of course, on the cross. And so this new wine, the new wineskin, reveals that by all the things that are required by God's law, he's going to provide in his grace. That the death and the resurrection of Jesus, they usher in God's goal in the gospel, which is Jew and Gentile. This new humanity moving toward the renewal of all creation. And that looking like Christ's multicultural global church. So Matthew responds to Jesus' call. Hey, follow me. So Matthew's being commissioned. He, he leaves his old life and he follows Jesus. And he goes on to author this gospel. To borrow from New Testament scholar William Barclay, Matthew left his tax collector's table, but he took one thing, his pen. This man whose trade had taught him to use a pen used that skill to compose a handbook of the teaching of Jesus. Matthew was driven by greed in the business of taking. Now he's being commissioned to ministry, driven by the gospel, a life of self-emptying and giving. And so church, I, I charge you this morning in closing. As Christ's church, we are those with whom he has called and cleansed and communed. So may we live in our city Cognizant that we are those he has commissioned. May we be like the friends who brought the paralytic to Jesus, caring enough to get involved, caring enough to be inconvenienced. May we not become myopic and fearful. And may we be bold, bold to bring people to hear of the love and the grace of Jesus, bold to speak of the love and the grace of Jesus, bold to give a defense for the hope that we enjoy in Jesus. May we not be fixated on our own shortcomings, though they are many. May we be fixated on Jesus and trust in Jesus because he is the one that does the calling. He is the one that does the cleansing. He is the one that does the ultimate communing. And he does all of these things through us. So we embrace his commissioning. Jesus said, I desire mercy. So may we go out in this city as ministers of mercy. Let's pray.